Well, we are returning this morning to our study through the Sermon on the Mount. But the text in the Sermon on the Mount this morning is not about politics or elections or related things. Before I read our passage this morning, I do want to say the following, and this is a slight modification of something I sent out earlier this week, if you get the emails that that come your way. So we here in the United States have a president-elect, and whether you are not pleased or whether you are pleased, as Christians, we need to remember our citizenship, first and foremost, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. God is still on the throne, and he is working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, Psalm 46, 1. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom will endure from generation to generation, Daniel chapter 3, verse 34. Our God is not small, and his providential care cannot be hindered. The king's heart will be a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, or the president-elect, and he will turn it, God will turn it, wherever he chooses, Proverbs 21.1. Not a bird will fall to the ground, or a hair from our head, apart from our Father in heaven, Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Our God does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. There's no guarantee for good or ill regarding the future of this experiment known as the United States of America, but there is an unbreakable promise that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. All of the promises of God are still yes and amen in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.39, the Lord still knows those who are his, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, and if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, Acts chapter 16, verse 31. We do not have to wonder about God's priorities each new day. He will exalt above all things his name and his word. Psalm chapter 138, verse 2. God promises to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6. The poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, the persecuted, they will be blessed. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 10. And the wicked will reap what they sow, because God cannot be mocked. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Finally, as for humanity, our days are like grass. Psalm 103, verse 15. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. And there is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 14. Verse 12. And one day, maybe soon, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of that name, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Would you pray one more time with me? So, Lord, remind us 
as your sons and daughters, as citizens of heaven, as saints, as, as Pastor Jim reminded us, of these things first and foremost. And then may, may those lead and guide us as we move into the days and weeks and months to come as a country. We do pray this morning for President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. We pray that they would lead our country uh, in, in, in good ways for the betterment of our country. We pray for all the others that have been elected and, and the changing offices. We, we do ask for your blessing uh, on, on things. And, and on the final couple of months of President Trump's time in office, we pray for peace for our country. But now turn our eyes and ears and hearts to your word, to the Sermon on the Mount, even in the chill of the wind this morning. I ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. I was thinking all the years of doing our Easter brunch outside, we had some damp mornings, but I don't know that it was ever this cold and windy in those years, but I have a short memory, so it may have been. Um, but wow, it's cold. Aren't you happy that the text for the sermon is just two verses? I'm not even going to try to mess with that. It's all here digitally, and I'll stick with that. But you know it comes from here. Okay. All right. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. Hear the word of the Lord, and, and as is sort of our tradition, uh, when we're done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say thanks be to God. So Matthew chapter 5. Verses 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And everyone, excuse me, and, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Some surveys indicate that 8 out of 10 people, either directly or indirectly, have been affected by divorce. The reality this morning is that we don't need surveys to tell us that the mention of just the word divorce is painful. And to have a discussion or a sermon on this topic brings up feelings and memories that frankly most would like to forget. Many have been deeply wounded in one way or another by a broken marriage. So this topic is difficult, and I have been praying a lot this week for this topic. I've been praying a lot for many of you, because I know, not everyone's story, but I know for many of you, you have been affected by divorce. And so this is difficult. One passage that the Lord brought to mind throughout the week is from Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. You don't need to turn there unless you'd like. I'll read it. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus said these very, very famous words. You'll, you'll know these. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, he wrote that of the 89 chapters that make up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The four accounts of the life of Jesus, 89 chapters. This is the only passage in which we learn about Jesus's heart. We learn a lot about what he did, what he said, what he thought, what he accomplished. But, but this is the only place in 89 chapters where he talks about his heart. And remember, heart isn't just emotions. For, for uh, the ancients, the heart was the core, the seed of you, a person. Your emotions, yes, but your intellect, your, your, your will, all of it. And Jesus says here that he is gentle and lowly in heart. In other words, meek, gentle, humble. That, that is very much at the, at the core of, of who Jesus is. So he invites people to come to him. And yes, in the context, a lot of the, the immediate context was people who were burdened by the religious obligation of their day. And, he, and he's saying, come to me, because I'm, I'm a lot different than this religion you've been trying to do. But nonetheless, I don't think it's wrong to, to note still the heart of Jesus. He, he invites all who are heavy laden. That's, again, a throwback to probably the King James language, right? Beautiful language, but that word simply means burdened. Come to me all who are burdened about anything and everything. Maybe religion, yes, but I think we can apply it to everything in life we go through, including the hurt and pain, the burden of broken marriage, the burden of divorce, the burden of lingering effects. Jesus says, come to me if you have burdens about that. This is who I am. I'm humble, gentle, meek. You will find rest in me. So if, if you hear nothing else this morning, um, please hear Jesus' invitation to come to him for rest. And I've been praying for that. Now, we turn our attention, though, to these two verses. Jesus is right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right? This most famous sermon of all time. As I've said before, the closest thing we have to a manifesto from Jesus and those are John Stott's words, but I like them. Um, it includes his fulfilling comments on many different topics, including divorce. So you might recall um, several sermons back, verses 17 to 20, we noted that Jesus said, I have not come to, to unhitch myself or you, you guys from the Old Testament, from the law. No, I've not come to unhitch, to abolish, to get rid of. I've come to fulfill it. Uh, one of my professors, I've, I quoted this before, he, he wrote that Jesus' gospel, his good news of the kingdom, it does not replace the Old Testament, but rather it fulfills it as Jesus' own life and ministry, coupled with his interpretation, complete and clarify God's intent and meaning in the entire Old Testament. So Jesus is completing, he's clarifying God's intent and meaning on several topics. We have six different topics covered right here in Matthew 5. We heard Roger a few weeks ago cover murder, anger. Then, then we looked at adultery and lust. And now today, it's this topic of divorce. One commentator said this, to see this matter, divorce, through Jesus' eyes is good for us as individuals. It's good for the church it's good for society. I believe that. It's difficult, but it's good. These are Jesus' words. The one who is humble, meek, and gentle. The one who says, come to me if you're burdened. I will give you rest. So we, we need to hear Jesus' words. They are good. Let me say, though, that Jesus doesn't say everything that the Bible says about divorce. 
Jesus here in Matthew 5 uh, has some true words to say. There's another story, we'll talk about it briefly, another incident rather, later on in Matthew 19, where he's actually um, questioned about divorce, and he goes into more of that. Um, but, but So Jesus doesn't cover everything that the Bible covers from Genesis to Revelation. So I do want to address that. Um, it would be a lot longer of a sermon, and it's cold, but it's not just because it's cold today. It's just beyond the scope today. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're dealing with Jesus' words. Um, I will say, though, if today questions are raised and you want to flesh things out, um, I'd love to talk. I'd love to schedule hot coffee somewhere uh, to talk, even if it's a hot day uh, sometime. Um, Let's open our Bibles. Let's pour into the scriptures. Again, there's a lot more than just these two verses, but these are Jesus' words. They're in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to hear them. And so let's move into that. Finally, then, where I hope we go, what I hope we accomplish this morning, two things. Jesus indicates here, according to him, that there should be no easy divorce. No easy divorce. And then secondly, he just affirms the sanctity, the holiness of marriage. Okay? That, that's at the core of this. No easy divorce, and then the holiness, sanctity of marriage. All right, a few other things at the outset here. Uh, in Matthew 5, where we are, as I mentioned, we've got these six different examples or applications, right? He said, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he's going to go into these examples. And there's a very um, repetitive formula. Jesus will say something like, you've heard it said, and then he t- typically quotes something from the law, from the Old Testament. And then he says, but I say to you. And so what he's doing, again, he's not not undermining what, what is said in the law, but He's, he's dealing with their interpretation because over years, people forgot that, that God looks at the heart. People forgot the real intent and a lot of other things, even as we'll see with this topic today. So that's number one to remember. And, and then secondly, though, this one in particular is a little bit different. So if you're looking at your, your Bibles, notice how verse 31 starts. This one simply says, it was also said. So that's just a little bit different, a little bit shorter than all the others. You can look up or down. You probably have headings in your Bible. This one is just slightly shorter. Uh, In fact, there's just one little word in the Greek language, a little connective uh, also. It's the word also. Uh, It takes us two words. It was, or three words. It was also said. What, What that means is this These two verses, they really get connected to the previous section, which had to do with adultery and lust. And so had we had more time on that sermon, this should have maybe been connected. It would have, you know, lended itself to be connected there. So, so that's, that's an important thing. Jesus didn't address in the exact same formula. It's just slightly different as if to say, uh, as one writer puts it, the Old Testament not only points toward insisting that lust is the moral equivalent of adultery, right? That's the section before, a few weeks ago. But also divorce. Divorce also is the equivalent of adultery. The Old Testament has pointed that way. But people in Jesus' day had forgot that. Um, th- this, this saying, it was also said, and then Jesus, he quotes Deuteronomy 24, uh, verse 1, and, and, and again, as I mentioned, later on in, in Matthew 19, he's going to get um, questions from Pharisees uh, about divorce, and they are also going to reference this passage. So Matthew 19, Jesus goes into more. We're, we're going to talk about some of that. 
Again, Jesus wants his people, those listening to him then, and I believe he wants us even now to just understand adultery is serious in God's eyes. And so lust pointed toward toward it, and, and, and divorce does as well. Let's let's try to unpack this and see how this, this goes. So Deuteronomy 24, 1, then let me read this for you. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and then verses 2, 3, and 4 go on to, to talk more. But th- that's the phrase in question, especially in, in Matthew 19. What does it mean to find some indecency, as the ESV put it? That, that's what was asked of Jesus in Matthew 19. And here in Matthew 5, Jesus isn't responding to their questions. He's simply laying out what, what it's supposed to look like for God's sons and daughters, for kingdom citizens. And, and, and he's insisting that God's sons and daughters, marriage matters, and, and it's, it's holy. There's to be a sanctity to marriage, and, and there shouldn't be easy divorce. And so he just gets right to it and says, no, um, except there be, let me read it again for us. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, that's one word in the original, we'll come back to it, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's where Jesus goes. We have to unpack that and understand that. But in Jesus' mind is this realization that in his day, they had all this opinion about this indecency clause from Deuteronomy. Now, especially there were two rabbinical schools in in Jesus' day. There was the very liberal school of Hillel, one, one rabbi, and then the less liberal, still liberal, but a less liberal school of Shammai. So Hillel, Shammai. Both of them permitted divorce. Uh, and again, in, in this time, it was of the woman by the man. Um, the reverse was not even considered in those days. Okay, And again, it was on the grounds of some indecency from Deuteronomy 24. Hillel and Shemel, Shammai, sorry, both... Uh, allowed and permitted divorce, but they disagreed on what this indecency might be. Now, Shammai and his followers, they, they interpreted the expression to refer to gross indecency, we might say, though, though not necessarily adultery. Okay, they would limit indecent to other offenses of, of marital impropriety. Okay, we'll just kind of keep it there. Uh, indecent, it did not have to mean adultery, which, by the way, in the law... Uh, adultery wasn't a grounds for divorce because uh, adultery was um, punishable by being stoned, being killed, okay? So they didn't need to have that be an issue in the law as a grounds for divorce. Hillel, the more liberal of the of these rabbinical uh, opinions, uh, interpreted this expression, this indecency, way beyond all kinds of real or even imagined offenses. And seriously, including... Um, the notion that a man could divorce his wife if, if she cooked his meal improperly. In fact, uh, this Rabbi Hillel, he had a follower, Rabbi Akiba, who was of this school of thought. He went even further, and, and, and there's in antiquity this saying of his that if someone has found indecency in, in his wife, um, this means that 
he could divorce his wife, and if that indecency includes, that is, he finds another woman who's more beautiful. So if, if this guy sees a more beautiful woman, that now means he can declare his wife to be indecent. So at one level, we kind of want to chuckle, but, but really it's disgusting. How, how liberal, how, how gross, and how widespread divorce was. In, in Jesus' day. And we don't realize that. I mean, we live in a time where, again, I don't, I don't have any stats in front of me. Uh, I mean, I, and typically all I can think of are like, like celebrities, you know, who you can rattle off the number of marriages maybe they've had or whatever. But it, it was just so different. It was, it was so flippant. And again, part of that had to do with the fact that uh, women didn't have uh, the rights in, in culture like today. And so um, men could... could divorce easier, and, and, and these women would need to be remarried, otherwise they would have no means of livelihood, and, and all of those things. But, but notice this, as disgusting as all that is, and, and we need to feel that, right? T- to find someone else more beautiful, that makes someone um, not, not worthy to, to be you know, indecent, and, and to divorce over cooking and all that is disgusting and as horrible as that is. Here, here's what I want us to hear. Hillel, Shammai, where's Jesus? He's not partisan. (laughs) He doesn't lean either way on this and on so many other things. The prevailing two parties in his day on whatever topics, whether it's these two rabbis, whether it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus is never leaning either way. He has his way. He has the Lord's way. That, that, that needs to say a lot to us on a lot of topics. Jesus here knows that God's intent from the beginning, he knows that God had an intent with marriage from the beginning and he wants his followers to return to that understanding. So he doesn't deal with Hillel in, in that extreme liberal view on divorce and doesn't even really deal with Shammai's less liberal. He just says no, unless, unless, there's sexual immorality, or except in the case of sexual immorality, to divorce causes adultery. To divorce causes adultery. So again, I mentioned, I've said a few times now, this polarization is really at the heart of this interaction he would have in Matthew 19. And, and you can read more of that um, another time. Um, again, because of time here, I want to just summarize a couple things that happened there in Matthew 19. They come to test him, the Pharisees, and they drill on him, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's kind of the Hillel idea. Jesus answers from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and Genesis 2, 24. So Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, before Genesis 3, before sin entered the world, Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then they go in and ask him, well, then why did Moses uh, permit uh, or command? They, they say command that there could, should be a certificate of divorce. And, and then Jesus says, look, it's because of sin. The phrase he uses is the hardness of heart that we all have. He's not calling one person here the heart of hearted. He's saying because of the hardness of heart of humanity, God got allowed, God permitted. There, there are 
exceptions. But from the beginning, it was not so. God's intent from the beginning was that marriage be one man, one woman, and that this one man, one woman marriage, this one flesh would, would remain, would stay, would stay together till death do us part. What, what, what God has joined together, only God can separate. That's, that's God's intent. That's Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And Jesus says, that's, that's where I land. Forget what the prevailing wisdom is, the two schools of thought. No, th- this is God's intent for God's people, especially. But there is hardness of heart, sin, that enters into the world. And so there is permission or allowance for divorce. But again, that had become so abused, as I have illustrated, and Jesus wants his followers then, he wants his followers now, to understand the sanctity, the holiness of marriage. Again, God's original intent. Let let me read this longer few sentences from one commentator. Therefore, based on Jesus going back to Genesis 1 and 2, therefore any view of divorce and remarriage taught in either testament that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not be done, in other words, you know, well, what can we do? When is it allowed? You know, it's it's that whole idea of how close to the edge can we get, right? As a former youth pastor, that was always the question. Well, how far can we go instead of how safe can we stay? So any view taught in either testament that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not be done has already overlooked a basic fact. Divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but as evidence of sin, of, of the hardness of heart. The fundamental attitude of the Pharisees and of these two rabbis to the question was wrong. Instead of saying, well, when can I? When is it allowed? How, how wide is the net? Jesus says, no, you're, you're asking the wrong question. So Jesus is dealing with, addressing, discouraging what, again, might be called hasty divorce, quick, easy divorce. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament, from the beginning, God who made us has pointed always to the sanctity of of marriage. Verse 32, however, here back in Matthew 5, does have this concession, you might say, this exception. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And we could say in our day, you know, we could substitute her and and him and, and, you know, all that. Again, Jesus was dealing with the, the cultural context of his day and how he identified those. In other words... We have to understand at the very center of his teaching, at the heart of this study, is what, what this means, sexual immorality. So as I already alluded to, in Greek, it's one word. It's the Greek word pornea. It's from uh, the word we, we get, the English word pornography. And to, to just summarize, it, it is an umbrella term. Sexual immorality in the Bible, pornea, covers all of it. Adultery, fornication, and just making sure the roses aren't coming over on me. 
it's an umbrella term to cover anything outside of God's intent. Okay? And we'll leave, leave that there for, for now. So Jesus is saying, this category is, is the exception. Not, not these crazy ideas of indecency that these different schools of people had taught and taught and taught and that prevailing wisdom held to. No, it, it's sexual immorality. That is, that is the exception. That, that's where it's allowable, permissible. But it's important to note, Jesus doesn't say that it has to be the case. And that's part of what we need to hear too, right? The sanctity, the holiness of marriage. God's, God's intent is that those, those categories of sin not happen. And when they do happen, that, that can be so devastating to a marriage. And so there is then that, that allowance. But ideally, God would want, and again, we're talking in Matthew 5, to kingdom citizens, to sons and daughters of the kingdom. We would say it to, to believers, God's intent would be that two believers try to forgive, try to work through and build trust and, and get the counseling they need and maybe separation that's necessary and, and so on and so on and so on and to, to try to not have a marriage end in divorce. It's always God's desire if a hundred million things are lined up rightly that, that a marriage stay in place. And again, we... we it's impossible in one sermon to cover all of, all of the nuances of that. This is one of those deep, strong, difficult, pastoral life questions. Again, because of the hardness of heart, because of sin, it's never just simple. And I, I understand that. And I think Jesus does too. I think, again, in this context, he's wanting to say, I've come to show you God's intent from the, the Bible. And so you've heard it said and divorce at any, for any reason, for any indecency, no. No, except for sexual immorality, no, no divorce. You can't go down this road of, I'm tired of, of her, she doesn't cook my meals right, oh, I found someone else that I find more attractive. No, none of that. There's a sanctity to marriage. That, that is at the heart of what Jesus is driving at. He is stricter than Hillel and Shammai, because he, he is taking us back, taking them back to Genesis 1 and 2. So Jesus' teaching is, is clear. There are some interpretations of these texts that, that again, cause a lot of convolution, but we, we need to listen and hold to the plain sense of what Jesus says and, and have that guide all the pastoral real issues that must get worked out. Now, just briefly, this is Jesus in Matthew 5. It's very similar to what he does in Matthew 19, right? Pretty much the same exact answer. In Matthew 19, he fleshes it out more. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 deals with divorce in the context of a non-Christian and a Christian. And so there becomes another example, another case where if in in a marriage, uh, there's a non-Christian and a Christian, which is also not God's intent, but it happens for all kinds of reasons and different things, um, other sermons, other coffee discussions. But in those marriages, if, if the unbelieving spouse wants a divorce and seeks the divorce, essentially, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the believer is free in the Lord. 
And so there's an exception there as, as well. There become, there comes a host of other questions and we think about things in our day um, like, like violent abuse of spouses and, and all of that. And, and again, we have to pray and, 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 and seek authorities when necessary and seek separation and counseling and, 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 and yet no one should be forced to stay in something that is harmful and, and hurtful and, and all of that. But again, that has to get fleshed out in prayer and conversation with, with brothers and sisters. And, and I would say in the context of a church with church leaders who will pray and love and confront. And, and again, it's difficult. It's difficult. Let me, let me end this morning with just a few things to have us all remember. Church, there's always forgiveness in the Lord. There's no sin, whether it's divorce, whether it's adultery, whether it's lying, whether it's slander or whatever that is unforgivable. So there's forgiveness in the Lord. There's grace from God. I love James where he says, he gives more grace. God's grace is limitless and we need to seek it out and experience it. There's restoration in the Lord and healing. In John chapter 8, that famous story, sad story, but famous one, where Jesus all of a sudden has this woman thrown in front of him, and these people say, Rabbi, she was caught in the act of adultery. Well, they didn't bring the man. Typical. They say, what, do, what, what does the law say? The law says this, this woman should be stoned, should be killed. That's the Old Testament punishment for adultery. What do you say? And you know the story. Jesus bends down and writes something. We don't know what. People speculate all the time what. But finally, he, he answers, let you with no sin throw the first stone. And one by one they leave. And only Jesus remains because he has no sin. And, and he says, woman, they're gone. Go and sin no more. He forgives. He restores. There's grace. And I love that story. Again, it's a picture of so many other sins we face. Um, before the Lord, we, we have this Jesus who says, come to me with your burdens. I, I will give you rest. I will give you grace. I will forgive. I love how this pastor summarized this text in his sermon that he preached maybe 40 years ago. First, we must resist the permissiveness of our culture and solidly take our stand against divorce or remarriage on any ground other than those taught in God's word. Next, we must refrain from self-righteous judgmentalism. All of us are adulterers at heart. We must exercise our dealings with those who have fallen, realizing that we ourselves are under Christ's dictum. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Finally, towards those who have fallen to or suffered divorce, we must be forgiving like our Lord. We must not call unclean that which he has called clean. We must endeavor to share the suffering of those ravaged by divorce. And lastly, the church 
should make provision for the remarriage of those who have been biblically divorced. God help us. May we be filled with forgiveness and grace and mercy and love. And if you have, again, this in your life, people in your life that have had this and and there's this hurt and shame and grief, like we sang about, the love of God is vast and wide and it's available. God help us. Let's, Let's pray. So Father, as I've been praying all week, may we this morning know what it means to come to you with our burdens, including any and every burden related to this topic. May we find the comfort and peace and rest and grace and forgiveness and love that is available to us. May we as a church not be finger pointers and judgmental at heart, but filled with compassion and grace. But may we also stand on what you say and and, and live under its authority. God, help us. Help our marriages. May we view marriage as holy as you do. I pray in Jesus' name.